You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Welcome everyone, great to see you and uh, welcome to our visitors, glad you could join us this morning. And um, I don't recall, when I preached last week, I preached on the Temple of God for those who weren't here, did I say anything about preaching on the resurrection this week? Does anyone remember? No, you don't. So Merrily selected those songs we, we sang this morning and I noticed there was a thread of resurrection through every single one of them. And my topic this morning is resurrection. So praise God. <laughs> he, yeah, he leads when, even when they're on a road trip up to uh, New South Wales. He still leads them and, and uh, trusts that he's keeping them safe. You can you want to get your Bibles open to John chapter 2. Jesus was notorious for saying things in veiled even in cryptic language, time and time again, people would ask him a question and he would answer in a roundabout way, in a way that didn't seem to have very much to do with the question that was asked. When we get to John chapter 10, we'll see the Jews ask Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And his answer there is not plain. He seemed to almost take pleasure in saying things that would confuse people. And he has a reason for doing this, and he gives us some hints of the reasons in the Gospels. Um, might talk about that some other time, I won't this morning. Last week, though, we heard Jesus talk about his body as a temple, when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Naturally, the priests and the Pharisees and other Jews thought he was referring to the temple that they were standing in at the time, the building that had been under construction for 46 years. And, uh, but of course Jesus wasn't. He was talking in riddles again. Even his disciples didn't get it at the time. After his resurrection, though, it says, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they and the Jews listening at the time, didn't understand, though, that he meant his body and not the actual physical building. So let's refresh our memory by going back to that passage in John chapter 2, starting with verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
I think if we were standing there at the time without the benefit of the New Testament, without the benefit of 2,000 years of biblical scholarship, we'd be scratching our heads also saying, Jesus, speak plainly, what are you on about? But what Jesus was alluding to is actually one of the most important aspects of Christian faith, the resurrection. Specifically, he was talking about his resurrection, but by extension, he was talking about ours also. The resurrection of Christ is foundational to Christian faith. In fact, it's so important that Paul says if there's no resurrection, there is no Christian faith either. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about it and he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There's no secret here. If there's no resurrection, there is no Christian religion. If there's no resurrection, those who call call ourselves Christians are not only deluded, but we're worse than that, we're pathetic. We are pitiful excuses for humans if there's no resurrection. If If there's no resurrection... We should be ashamed of ourselves for being so gullible, so easily sucked in. The enemies of Christian faith sometimes understand this better than we Christians do. If you can disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you destroy Christianity. You don't just knock it about, you destroy it. That's why so many attacks are directed at the resurrection of Christ. So let's begin by looking briefly at some of the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's important you realise there is evidence. There is a reason to believe that the resurrection is real. It's not based on myths and legends and flights of fancy. You know, it's not only the New Testament that records the resurrection of Christ. There are... uh, historians from the time and from the years, the decades shortly after, that make reference to Christ, that make reference to the resurrection, that make reference, actually they're hostile historians too, most of them. They are ones that hated the Christians and had no reason to be promoting Christianity, Christian faith and uh, resurrection, and yet they record the, uh, the change that was in the Christian followers, the disciples, they record about the existence of Jesus and they record stories about him being raised from the dead. People that were hostile to Christianity. In the New Testament we read about the empty tomb. New Testament records that Jesus' lifeless body was placed in a tomb carved out of a rock and sealed with a large rock. Roman soldiers were placed in front of that tomb to make sure that the disciples didn't sneak in during the night, steal his body away and pretend he'd been raised from the dead. The uh, Pharisees took seriously the threat that he would be raised from the dead or at least the threat that they would pull a swifty 
hide his body away and pretend that he'd been raised from the dead. But you better bet these Roman soldiers knew how to do their job. And their life was on the line, the soldiers. If they failed in their duty to guard that tomb, if the disciples were able to overcome them or sneak in and steal the body away, those soldiers themselves would have been put to death. Their life was dependent on guarding that tomb. You better believe. They, they were hardened soldiers. They knew how to do their job. After the resurrection, the New Testament records that Jesus revealed himself to hundreds of people, not just the few followers he had when he was crucified, the uh, 11 disciples who were left after Judas um, betrayed Jesus and committed suicide and a few others, the women that followed along. He revealed himself to 500 at one time, it says. And the reappearance of Jesus after his death had such a dramatic impact on the disciples that it changed them forever. You remember, Jesus' disciples were disillusioned and disheartened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. They were expecting him to overthrow the Romans and re-establish rule in Jerusalem. And when, uh, when he was nailed to that cross, when he died, when he was taken away and buried in the tomb, they didn't know what to think. They were confused, they were disillusioned, they were fearful, they were hiding behind locked doors because they were frightened of the Pharisees and the priests coming to arrest them. Some of them, in fact, were unconvinced when women came back from the tomb on Sunday morning and said, he's not there, he's risen. And they still didn't believe. But these same fearful and disbelieving disciples suddenly decided it would be a good thing to stand up, stand up and boldly proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even in the face of the threat of punishment and even death, they stood up and boldly proclaimed that Jesus was raised from the dead. Even sceptical modern historians read that account and say something must have happened. Even if they don't believe in the resurrection, they say something has happened that made these disciples change their complete attitude, a total turnaround. And of course, there's the unique person of Christ. People make plenty of claims about Christ based on what they want him to be. They claim some that, that he was deluded or that he was a liar or that he was merely a man in the wrong place at the wrong time. But none of these claims hold water if you read the Gospels intelligently. C.S. Lewis declared, I'm sure you know, he is either lunatic, liar or lord. He can't be all three. But he also appears to be the most stable, the most balanced person that's ever walked the face of the earth. He was undaunted by threats and by opposition. He was neither passive nor aggressive in the way he went about his life and dealt with people. He is a man who knew the task he was called to and he followed his path without wavering, without getting discouraged and without fear. His wisdom shut the mouths of the of his enemies, of the most highly trained speakers and orators and students of the, of the scriptures. And when they wanted to silence him permanently, they couldn't find anything 
to actually lay a charge against him, so they had to falsify charges against him so that they could have a cause for executing him. So that leaves us with the last option. He's not a lunatic, he's not a liar, he must be Lord. And if he is Lord, then we better find out what he expects of us, what he demands of us, and we better respond appropriately. There are other reasons for believing in the the resurrection, but that's enough for now. Some would still want to argue that the resurrection never happened, but the best explanation for the events is that it was a true, actual, real, literal resurrection from the dead. Assuming then that the resurrection is real, that it is a historical event in human history, that it is a pivotal event in human history, why did it happen? What was its purpose? They say there's only two things in life that we can be certain of, death and taxes. Taxes don't seem to to end, do they? But death tends to be final. Now we all know, I'm sure, that Jesus died to pay the penalty for, for our sin. We stand guilty before our perfect and holy creator for our sin and for our rebellion. Jesus himself, though, was sinless. He was perfect. He was undeserving of death. But he took our sin upon himself. He bore the punishment that was due to us. And he did it so that we would not have to face a punishment that we could not bear. Problem is, though, that the penalty for sin is death, as we all know, and there's no coming back from death. So Jesus was crucified and his dead body was placed in a tomb. If that was the end of the matter, matter, then Jesus Christ, the man who is also God, remember, would be eternally separated from his Father. That's unthinkable that that could happen. But it would be the real result of his death if there was no resurrection. And in fact, that would be the result for us too if there's no resurrection. If we were to bear the punishment that we deserved, then we would have to die for our own sins and our death might pay for our sins, but that would be the end of the line. There'd be no more resurrection. We would be eternally separated from God also. And there would be no way back out of that situation. But God's ingenious plan, of course, was to impute our sin to his son who had done no sin. Because he, Jesus, was a perfect and undeserving person, undeserving of death, Death had no claim on him. We've sung about that in in four different songs this morning. Death had no claim on him. So once the penalty was paid, there was no need for him to remain dead. Resurrection then for Jesus was a way back to his father. Resurrection is also vindication that he died unjustly, that he did not deserve to die. And if he died for his own sins, we know, he would have remained dead, but he didn't. Resurrection was fulfilment of many, many Old Testament prophecies. And thus it's proof 
that God's word is true. Resurrection and return to the Father was necessary for Jesus to send us his Holy Spirit. Remember he says in John 16, Nevertheless I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. No resurrection, no Holy Spirit. Resurrection was necessary for us as believers to be empowered as witnesses. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we have nothing to proclaim but some nice teachings from a nice man. But if he is raised, we have a powerful, powerful message of victory over sin and death. We also have the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit as a witness to him. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, it says in in Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the outermost parts of the earth. I could go on, but I'll finish this section with one last thought. Resurrection is proof that Jesus Christ is Lord and has the power over death, that he has defeated the last and the most powerful enemy, death itself. For this reason the Father loves me, Jesus said, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, he said, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That's John 10, 17 and 18 if you're taking notes. So it's all very well for us to declare that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but how does that help us? Is there any benefit for those of us who are left behind? There are in fact many benefits to us. It's important to recognise, however, these benefits only apply to those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. They do not apply to any who would reject him. Firstly, we have a saviour who can never die again. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, Paul wrote in Romans. His resurrection ensures our regeneration, our being born again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it says in First Peter, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It ensures our justification before God. When we put our trust in him, then our sin becomes Jesus and his righteousness becomes ours. It's applied to us. This is a topic you could spend untold hours, days, weeks, the rest of your life studying and is a fantastic thing to dig into. If you're looking for something to study in scripture, study justification because the, the uh, implications of it are stunning for your life, your Christian life. Essentially, if you believe in Christ, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, 
you also are declared not guilty. So the punishment that we deserved was served by him, the penalty was paid in full by him so that we are released from further punishment. It therefore ensures the forgiveness of our sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But the opposite of that is, if Christ has been raised, you are forgiven your sins. We have a new power for holiness. We were buried therefore, Romans 6.4 says, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we have a new power for service. Philippians 3.10 That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. There's a lot more that could be said, a lot more benefits. But uh, without going into them more, anymore, here's some courtesy of, a few more courtesy of John Piper. His resurrection brings for us repentance. It brings no condemnation to us. It gives us his personal fellowship and protection. It ensures future justice for all the unpunished evil we see in the world. It ensures us salvation from the future wrath of God. And it guarantees our own resurrection from the dead. So what do we have to look forward to then? There's a modern fascination with the afterlife. We see it in Hollywood movies that deal with the afterlife and uh, supernatural themes and post-death experiences and things like that. And there's been a real interest in what they call near-death experiences in recent years and uh, scientists have studied it and a lot of people have written books about it. The experience of people who have been... uh, have died on an operating table or, or uh, in an accident or something like that and they see great bright lights and feel peace and all that sort of thing and then they come back to life again. Some claim that they've been hovering over the operating table and can, re- and, uh, can um, recall everything that was said while they were dead. There's been great fascination about it. A lot of books written about it and Christians unsurprisingly are fascinated by testimonies of people who have died and gone to heaven. But then so are many non-Christians. So do we just cease to exist, as some believe, or is there really an afterlife? Remember the Sadducees in Jesus' time didn't believe there was a resurrection. Do we cease to exist, or is there something after death? Christianity says emphatically, of course, yes, there is life after death, And for believers, there's something pretty special, pretty exciting to look forward to. But for those who reject Christ, their destiny is truly terrifying. The primary benefit for those of us who believe is that we'll get to spend eternity in the presence of our Lord. And we'll be doing that in resurrected bodies. As I get older, 
I am increasingly conscious this body of mine is breaking down. It's wearing out bit by bit, day by day. Until I turned 40, I felt like I was 25 physically. I had strength, I had energy. I wasn't in perfect health, but I was pretty healthy. And I felt much younger than my physical age. But somewhere around my 40th birthday, someone flicked the switch. And I went from feeling like I was 25 to feeling like I was 75, almost overnight. Things began to break down. I'm sure those who are older can can testify to this as well. My physical strength declined rapidly, whereas I could lift, uh, in years gone by, a six-metre sheet of plaster that weighs 55 kilos on my own onto the top of a wall. I I struggled to lift half that size under my arm to move a metre now. No, I could not lift it over my head anymore. My joints ache. My back gives me trouble. I've had one shoulder reconstructed. The other one needs it pretty badly. I don't have the stamina I used to have. I run out of steam pretty quickly. My eyesight's gone. Not gone entirely, but deteriorated dramatically. My hearing's not good, especially in a crowded, noisy room, so if I'm talking to you and I'm giving you a blank look, please forgive me, it's my poor hearing, and I forget things. This body of mine is truly a tent, as scripture calls it. Thank God it's not a permanent house. Tents are good when they're new, but you leave a tent out in the elements for a while, It fades, it flaps, it rips apart at the seams, it blows away. A good mate of mine many years ago had been confined to a wheelchair since childhood and I remember him telling me once that the thing he was most looking forward to when he got to heaven was being able to climb a tree. It's a simple desire, but he understood resurrection. He understood there's an afterlife. He understood there's a perfected body coming. He died quite a number of years ago now, still a relatively young man, but I reckon he's sitting at the top of a tree, the top branches of a tree in heaven at the moment with a grin from ear to ear. One of the benefits of resurrection is that Jesus Christ has gone ahead of me and he's gone ahead of you. He's gone ahead of my friend, to prepare us all a new house, a new dwelling place. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on the heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Ever since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, our physical bodies have been subject to wear and tear, eventually wearing out, and dying. 
But Jesus Christ was resurrected as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, as the first fruits of those who have died. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15. And Jesus said he was going ahead of us to prepare a dwelling place for us. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, he said. Many mansions, some translations put it. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. Paul goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 15.35 But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you saw is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. There's a significant difference between the tent that we live in now and the mansion that we, will, we look forward to inhabiting one day. But there's also significant continuity between the two. Just as a grain of wheat goes into the ground and springs up into a crop of wheat, not into a crop of corn, not into a crop of strawberries, it springs up into a crop of wheat, so our current bodies are the seed of our future resurrected bodies. What we will receive is a perfected version of what we have now, not something totally different. But it will be a permanent body, not one subject to wear and tear, and not one subject to death again. That's one of the differences between resurrection and revival. There's plenty of instances in the scriptures of dead people being raised back to life, but they were all subject to physical death again. Lazarus, for example, was brought back to life by Jesus, but he was eventually subject to death. It tells us nothing about him being taken up to heaven, so we can assume he died. And have you noticed that those who have near-death experiences or claim to have died and gone to heaven and then returned to earth still go on to die again one day? You've noticed that? But resurrection is permanent. Resurrection is permanent. When you are resurrected, you don't die again. Your new body is imperishable. And thank God for that. So it is goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. So even though the new body is different, the new body is spiritual, I'm convinced there will be enough continuity between the ones that we have now and the ones that we will have one day that we will be recognisable to each other. When Mary Magdalene went to Jesus' tomb on the Sunday morning, 
She saw Jesus standing there and she didn't recognise him at first. Maybe it was because it was dark. But when he said her name, she turned and looked at him and recognised him. The two disciples on the Emmaus Road, you'll recall, walking along with Jesus and invited him in for a meal with them. Didn't recognise him either until he broke bread and it says their eyes were open and they recognised him. Later on, Jesus shows the disciples the wounds in his hands and in his side as evidence that it was really him that they were seeing. We don't know what the wounds looked like, whether they were healed and they were just scars. We don't know for sure. Obviously, there must have been some sort of open wound because he invited Thomas to put his hand inside the wound in his side. What we do know is he was still recognisable as Jesus. We do know that he wasn't some sort of ghostly apparition. Luke 24 tells us, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. There wouldn't be much point showing them his hands and his feet and showing him showing them his wounds if they weren't able to recognise it as the same wounds in the same person that had been nailed to that cross. A couple more brief examples might suffice to make my point. When Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus in the garden shortly before his arrest, Peter recognised them, even though Peter had never met them. They'd been dead for hundreds of years, maybe a thousand odd years, more than a thousand with Moses. Peter recognised them, so there was something about them that was recognisable. And when the rich man and Lazarus both died, the rich man in torment in Hades recognised Abraham across the chasm. So I conclude from scripture that our future bodies, while significantly different, will also be significantly the same. The story of the rich man and Lazarus actually gives us an interesting look behind the curtain of death and into the afterlife. I think I might come back in a couple of weeks' time and have a closer look at this if you're interested. See what the Bible does tell us about the afterlife. The vast majority of humanity will experience resurrection. Some resurrection to eternal joy and tragically some to eternal punishment. Not everyone will experience physical death first though. Those who are still alive when Jesus comes back again at the end of time will be changed in the twinkling of an eye and will receive their new imperishable bodies immediately. 1 Corinthians 15 again, this is a really important passage, this whole chapter about resurrection. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. When Paul says we shall not all sleep, he means we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We sang about that this morning, remember? Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting? What a thing to look forward to. As long as you're a believer in Jesus Christ when he returns, even if you've died before that event, you'll receive your new body. Imperishable, perfected, made complete, made a suitable body to dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's gone because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How should we respond then? We should respond with obedience. When Paul finishes telling us about death being swallowed up in victory, he goes on to tell us, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. We should have a different perspective on life. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And we should stop yielding to sin. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. If you doubt the truth of the claims of Christianity, if you doubt the reality of Christ and Christian faith, you can easily disprove it. I don't think there's any here probably who doubt it. But if you do, you can easily disprove it. Prove the resurrection never happened and the whole lot will fall down like a house of cards in a tornado. Be warned though, plenty of people have tried to do just that and have ended up as Christians when they're faced with the evidence. Maybe there's some who will be exceptions to the rule and will be able to disprove the resurrection. I doubt it. Of course then, if you try to disprove it and fail, then you have a dilemma on your hands, a dilemma of eternal consequence. For if the resurrection really happened, then every claim the Bible makes about Jesus Christ is true and every claim the Bible makes about Jesus Christ being judge is true and I can guarantee you do not want to face his judgement for his judgement is not based on how good we think we are how much better than our fellow man we are his judgement is based on how we measure up against the perfection 
of God, against the purity and the holiness of God. That's the standard we have to measure up against. And that's an impossible task. If you don't think you can be perfect and perfect all the time, then the solution, of course, is to turn to Jesus Christ and to turn to him today. And his promise is that he will impart his righteousness and his resurrection life to each one without fail. Each one who turns to Jesus Christ in faith has resurrection life and will never die again. We may die physically. We know Jesus doesn't come, we'll die physically. But our real bodies our mansions that Jesus has gone ahead to prepare will never die. And we're just waiting to inhabit those mansions. What an incredible hope we have in Christ Jesus. What a stunning thing that he has done for us. Resurrection. Not only is it the most important, most foundational thing to Christian faith, it is the thing that can, we can most hang our hope and our prospect of eternal joy and eternal life on. Because if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, we are forgiven our sins. We have a hope in heaven. We have a mansion prepared. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for the work you've done. Thank you, Father, for the resurrection. Thank you, Father, that no matter how many people have tried, no one has been able to disprove the resurrection because your word, Lord, is truth. Thank you, Lord. You said if there's no resurrection, then our preaching is in vain, Lord, because your resurrection is real. Our preaching is not in vain, but will accomplish that which you send it forth to do, Lord. Lord, we claim that as Christians and churches around this world preach the resurrection of Christ, that your word will go forth, that lives will be changed, lives will be transformed. Lord, would you do a work in us, would you cement in us the truth of resurrection, the hope for eternity? Would you drill that deep down into our hearts, into our minds, Lord? in Jesus Christ all our hope stands that our anchor is behind the curtain as it says somewhere in Hebrews Lord and anchored on the solid rock of Jesus Christ thanks for listening to City Edge Church for more information go to cityedgechurch.com.au